Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, I hope your brains have not absorbed too much aluminum because it's SST191, the Mofungo Bugged album. It's our first full-length Mofungo record. I think it's our first anything Mofungo, is that right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And to help us out, couldn't ask for a better guest, Brent. We have got... Robert Sietzema. Yeah, so cool to have Robert on. One of the pioneers of the New York no-wave scene, I think it's fair to say, too, right? Like, amazing, amazing stories. And, you know, we have a lot of guests on. Everyone is really great and gracious for being on the show, but every once in a while, someone sticks out as just a really nice, humble dude, and that's Robert, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, big time. All right, well, before we get bugged, Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiels? All right, I'm going to try something here, Ryan. I hope I don't upset you too much, but I, my theme this week is called Spiel Scoopage. <laughs> is that because you think it's stuff I'm going to mention and you want to steal it preemptively? Yeah, maybe even like I might even be scooping your top 10 stuff. Like What? Well, maybe. I don't know. Some of these might be top 10 contenders. I don't know. Okay. Well, scoop scoop away. I don't usually talk about like my new favorite albums anymore because I'm kind of saving it all for our big year-end recap. Oh, okay. So I hope I'm not... Well, I guess my theme is that I'm a spieler-stealer, so maybe I am. Maybe I do want to do that. I don't know. Okay. Well, I wouldn't put it past you, but you you would do it in the nicest possible way, wouldn't you? Okay, Ryan. Yeah, I'll try. Pile, this Boston band, I believe, made your top 10 in 2019 with Green and Gray. They were my number one. Okay. Number well, one. Uh, the record was on Exploding in Sound Records, and they have a new one on that same label called Songs Known Together Alone. Yeah. So that one is like noisy, post-punk, totally up your alley. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Have you heard it? Oh yeah, well I mean it's it's kind of a it's kind of a solo record. Yeah. Right? But I love All Pile all the time. Super underappreciated, not as well known as they should be. Yeah. So I'm really down with bands, you know, dramatically changing up their style from record to record. That's not the issue. This one just didn't grab me. Apparently well, it's a solo album. It's bare, yeah. it's like it's not the band version. The band version has got obviously a bit more teeth a little bit more oomph this one is laid back but they're all songs well not sorry not all of them are from prior albums but they're definitely more laid back because they're like a solo album well maybe he should have just called it rick mcguire then yeah maybe okay but i mean but i mean it started out as rick mcguire okay well maybe i'm just not familiar enough with the back catalog to fully appreciate it okay uh another boston band called fiddlehead ryan oh yeah oh yeah this is their second one called Between the Richness. Oh, yeah. On Boston indie label Run for Cover. Not really my thing, if I'm being perfectly honest. It really sounds like almost mainstream to me. Like something you'd hear on corporate rock radio, almost. Am I wrong? It's wrong for me. I mean, they're not they're not the fiddlehead from Allied Records from Days of Yore. That, they're more noisy. This fiddlehead is like more modern post hardcore melodic kind of has a discord feel to it i mean their their first record is definitely not as accessible as this latest one but i like them both okay but corporate rock seems 
I don't know, man. Corporate rock still sucks, and I don't think that they. I don't think that they're corporate rock. But keep going. Okay. This doesn't. This doesn't sound like <laughs> spiel scoopage. This sounds like a slam fest. But keep going. Okay. Uh, this band called Trigger Cut has a record called Rogo. Rogo. Yeah, that's been out for a long time. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, from Stuttgart, Germany, I. Recall you mentioning this band. I'm assuming in relation to 2019 album Buster. Yeah, I would have mentioned Rogo too. Both of them as they come out. This is this is Ralph's band. You know, he's been in a few bands before, right? Okay, it's good. Uh, I can totally see why you like this. It sounds like Steve Albini, Pro, uh, like a Steve Albini produced record, or or like or like a Steve Albini band. Sure, both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge Chicago touch and go affinity with trigger cut i would say but in a good way yeah i can tell you're annoyed right now by by me scooping your spiels these aren't these aren't actually (laughs) scooping my spiels none of these actually would have made it into my top 10 they may have made it into my honorable (laughs) mentions but it's it is bugging me a bit that you are it's a, it's not a it's not a spiel scoop. It's a slam fest, but that's okay. I slam hair metal all year long. It's time for me to get my comeuppance. Well, so I, keep going. I don't like keep ha- going. I don't like hair metal, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. People people should know too. Like Brant has a long history of making fun of bands that I love, like the Replacements, like Shellac, like Tom Waits. There are years and years and years of Brant dissing me for that stuff. But he's come around with the Replacements, though, over time, I would say. This episode is called Bugged, Ryan. You're you're bugging me. Keep going. Okay. Uh, Another band that I discovered all by myself called Daddy Longhead. Hell yeah. Has a new record called Twinkle. So this... but I mentioned this, man. That's Pincus. That's Pincus. I mentioned this weeks ago. <laughs> okay, so yeah, J.D. Pincus of Butthole Surfers fame. Uh, first album since 1998, and it's great. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Really reminds me of his band Honky, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Kind of a southern rock feel to it, too, hey, in a good way. Total ZZ Top influence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of this Canadian band that I like called White Cowbell, Oklahoma. Ah, Remember them? Do, I do, I do. Okay, Ryan, uh, and then I'll just cap it off with a uh, with a recommend, a good recommend that you made. <laughs> <laughs> and the implication there, of course, is that not all recommends are good ones, but let's do it. Go, Brent. Okay, Orphan Goggles, Perfect Specimen. Awesome. 2021. Yeah. Uh, I can see why you like this. It's noisy, but it's borderline heavier than what I thought you'd be into. Oh, yeah. I got all the Orphan Goggles stuff. There's some splits with Quee, and they're all good, man. Yeah, some of the riffs are almost traditional metal. In the band, Ryan, is Harry Cloud, who's done some really far-out collabs with Paul Rossler Mm -hmm. and recorded extensively with him at Kit and Robot. They have a super trippy album together called Permadeath from 2018. Paul talked about it when we had him on, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, I've not checked that out. Did you check it out? Uh, I did way back when he talked about it, but not recently. Mm, yeah, it's it's way down the list on a to-do list. But uh, now that you mention it, I'll have to bring it up higher up on the list. I'm assuming, Ryan, you come to this band through Sterling Riley, who is in Orphan Goggles, but also in Hepatitis, who I know you've mentioned before. Yeah, that's one way for sure. Yep. Yeah. 
The Orphan Gulls kind of remind me a bit of Mr. Bungle, especially the heavier stuff. It's goofy, but heavy, sometimes with some Melvins thrown in. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I was actually, as part of my spiels, going to mention that latest um, Mr. Bungle record. Are you all done? I'm done. Okay, man. So this is these are just some legit neutral spiels. No slamming. Okay, here we go. Um, I did want to mention to you, though, I listened this weekend to the new live Mr. Bungle record, The Night They Came Home. Have you heard that one, Brent? Uh, I have watched some of the footage. Like, okay. Because it's also a, I think it's a DVD or... It was, or, yeah. Or, or uh, it was at least a, like a, a, you know, a lockdown performance type thing, right? Yeah, I've watched some of that on, on the YouTubes, but... yeah. Well, when I, when I listened to this and I was just thinking back to your, um, a recent spiel about Anthrax and Scott Ian and how you love his right hand yeah, because he's, because he's a wicked rhythm guitarist. For sure better, he is. Better, yeah. better clarify that. Um, but when I was listening to this record, I was like, damn, this is some over the top thrash that I'm sure Brent would love. You should really check out the live record. It's not my, like this this era of Mr. Bungle is not my favorite era of Mr. Bungle, but you cannot deny the musicianship. The songs are great. Mike Patton is one of the best vocalists of all time. You cannot deny that. Um, and some great surprise covers on Lots this record. Loss of control, man. Yeah, you should really you should really listen to this uh, record if you haven't from start to finish. It's a good listen. Loss of Control is a great Van Halen song for Mr. Bungle to cover too, because it's probably one of their heaviest songs. There's a, and there's a few covers on there. They'll surprise you when you get there. But that is a good recommend for you. Now I've got a few more recommends here. I'm calling it my Mojack grab bag. Okay. Okay. So first is some literature, reading material, more books. Ready? I'm just stuck on, hung up on Scott Ian's right hand in the grab bag, but go. <laughs> <laughs> well, get out, get out your cockatoo quill because these are, you know, this might make your a Christmas list here. Okay. The first book is called Plus One Athens. Remember when we went to Athens in one of my spiels a few weeks back? Mm-hmm. So Chunklet Industries is putting out this book. It is a book on gig flyers from shows in Athens, 1967 to 2002, over 150 flyers. The main chunklet dude, Henry Owings, is um, the, the publisher here. There are essays by Dave Schools of Widespread Panic, Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers, Michael and Vanessa Hay from Pylon, and Arthur Johnson of Barbecue Killers, one of the bands that I was spieling about as part of my uh, stroll through Athens a few weeks back. Hand-numbered edition of 500. It looks really cool. Mm-hmm. Here's another one. Uh, actually, two, both on Hozak. One called Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records, and The Rise of New Wave. This is 415 Records. It's by Bill Cop, and it's about the, the record label, 415 Records, from San Francisco, that... Howie Klein and Chris Nab began way, way back. This is a label that put out records by Wire Train, Rocky Erickson, The Nuns, Pearl Harbor and, and The Explosions, Popple Pies, Offs, New Math, and there's two dozen other bands covered in this book. This one looks cool. And then second on Hozak is another book called Where the Wild Gigs Are, 
A Trip Through America's Legendary Underground Music Venues. This is by Tim Hinley and Friends. And it's about the spaces that are held sacred by music fans. All those clubs, all those little dank clubs that we all went to to go and see bands. Kind of like the one that you still book today, Brent. Mm -hmm. Um, It's full of photos, ads. One of the coolest things that it has, I've not seen the book in person though. One of the coolest things though it says it has are calendars. Like you know a a booking agent's calendar. That would be really cool to see uh, what those look like. It has a foreword by Byron Coley and an afterword by Tesco V. That looks like a cool book. Hey, Ryan. Yeah. You know what I was listening to right before we we hooked up here to record? Look What's that. that, man? Look at that. New right math. There. Yeah. The new math record. On, hey, four, on 415. Yeah, I didn't know you uh, were a fan. Yeah, well, you know who hipped me to new math? Oh, man, I don't know who. Our pal Mike Mirza. Oh, yes. Yeah. Drummer extraordinaire. Yeah, I think he played on a new math tribute album. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. No, I've I've had you know that is one of those records that I picked out and I knew nothing about. It was cheap. It looked cool way back when I didn't have much money, and I've had it ever since. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Um, all right, music. Some new music. First one is on the tree. You know that band Savic, Sorab Habibian's band, um, and Sorab, of course, from Edsel and the Obits. They've got a new digital single, Dealers, backed with Set Apart with guest musician Jay Maskus on this one. Pick nice. that one up on Bandcamp. Looks good. Uh, second, Anti-Tam. Remember, mm-hmm. we're, going to New- we're going to New York this episode, so why not mention some Anti-Tam? Yeah, I remember. So uh, this is the uh, New York indie trio, legendary indie, indie trio. This record, though, is called His Majesty's Request, A Wink O'Bannon Select. Here, Anti-Tam are joined by an all-star cast in honor of Louisville musician and ex-11th Dream Day guitarist, Wink O'Bannon. Wink was one of the architects of Louisville's punk scene in the late 70s. Um, It has musicians from Yola Tango, David Grubbs, um, the list goes on and on. It's on Bandcamp, Motorific Sounds. It was originally made to supplement Wink's medical costs during COVID. Unfortunately, he passed away in June 2020, so the proceeds are going to Girls Rock Louisville and Amped Charities. Um, And there are some, these are really, you know, Wink's favorite tracks done by people who knew him or that were a fan of his music. There are songs by Joy Division, Gang of Four, Sonny Chirac on here. It's a a cool-looking comp. Mm. And then uh, third... In uh, third and final in the Mojack grab bag, Brant, remember when we were talking about our go-to Goblin record? Remember? <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, just, uh, I just saw that, you know that label, Light in the Attic? Yeah. So they, they had some cool stuff on there, and they still do, don't get me wrong. Light in the Attic, I find it very expensive and very expensive to get to Canada, anything on Light in the Attic, unfortunately. But they've really, in the last few years, it seems to me, focused on soundtracks. Hmm. Um, that's That seems to be a focus. But speaking of Goblin, they are putting out a cool-looking box set by Goblin called The Horror. Original soundtracks, 1,000 copies, 10 LP set on blood red vinyl and one LP is rare and unreleased tracks. So 
pretty soon, instead of our go-to Goblin record, we'll have our go-to Goblin box set, maybe? Yeah, that's going to sell out in about 10 seconds, so... Yeah, there's a thousand copies made, and it's like 270 US. That is, that's expensive, wow. But uh, you know it's going to be good. That's all I got, Brent. Right on, man. Are we still friends? Well, I'm good. You're good? You're not too bugged? Not not too bugged. I'm a little bit, a little bit bugged by that pile record, but... <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you're not too bugged cuz let's get a little bit more bugged. History lesson, part 1. All right, Brant. So, like I said, our first episode with Mofungo. This record bugged is sometimes held out as and even I think Robert said one of their more accessible ones, but it is still weird, wild and wacky Mofungo. If you like all, if you like Mofungo, all Mofungo is good Mofungo. Yeah. This record is great. Their earlier releases are great. Um, where should we kick off? I listened to it all. I'm fully Mofungoized this week. I, I did all the Mofungo. Oh, like, and did you go past Bugged? Like, no. did you listen to work? No. That's, you breaking, the, that's breaking the rules. Exactly. I yeah. thought so. I thought so. I thought that was the rule. I wanted to check. One cool thing I'll mention real quick, though. You mentioned this on an episode a while back about that awesome book that Thurston Moore and Byron Coley did called No Wave, Post-Punk Underground New York, 76 to 80. There is one really cool thing in here. Just if you want to orient yourself, one of the ways to orient yourself with Mofungo is there is this cool like family tree in mm. there. Mm -hmm. And it shows all the, the band connections, but it shows Mofungo. There's information, blinding headache, and then Mofungo. Yeah, uh, I was thinking, Ryan, I was trying to think of other artists that had this much pre-SST history, like before they ended up on SST, like maybe somebody like Fred Frith. Yeah, not even Bad Brains or yeah. Descendants. No, there's like 10 years, man, Yeah, yeah. pre-SST. So we'll get into that. So I'll give you a little history lesson here. Okay, Mofungo, New York City-based group, active 1979 to 1993. Here's Chris True in the All Music Guide. Part no wave, part post-punk, Mofungo was an off-kilter noise band that worked in atonalities, squalling sax, and unsettling vocals. They evolved out of a few groups like you just mentioned, Ryan, and I'll get into this a bit more, uh, information and blinding headache. Here's Stephen Blush from that New York rock book. Mm -hmm. Blinding headache, an aptly named quartet, began in NYU's Brittany dorm. They opened for Teenage Jesus, Contortions, DNA, and Mars at CB's and 1980's New Wave Vaudeville at Irving Plaza. Information started with Minneapolis expats Chris Nelson and Phil Dre with Jim Sclavunas. When Jim left for Teenage Jesus, Blinding Headache's Rick Brown joined. Yola Tango on their 1989 New Wave Hot Dogs LP included Chris on a cover of Information's Let's Compromise off 1980's tape number one compilation with Blinding Headache and Mofungo. Mofungo Ryan is named for a Latin dish. You'll hear Robert talk a little bit about, about that in the interview. Uh, they blended jazz beats, dissonant guitars, and militant politics. Totally. Here, Here's Robert from a 1997 piece on the Perfect Sound Forever blog. Robert cites Robert Sietzema. 
We regarded music as a form of socializing and took a resolutely unprofessional approach. Only a few of us in the scene ever imagined becoming professional musicians. We were the stepchildren of the first generation of no-wave bands. We took pride in our facile and self-taught instrumental licks and played music that was often hookless and even atonal. Our influences were broad, including jazz, African music, commercial jingles, and the English punk movement, especially the artier aspects. We avidly followed bands like The Fall, Wire, and X-Ray Specs, all of whom we were able to see at CBGB's. Mofungo was the successor to Blinding Headache, a group that formed in the summer of 1978 out of a running jam session that took place in the basement of the, of the Brittany, an NYU dorm at the corner of 10th and Broadway. Original members were Jim Posner, Rick Brown, Willie Klein, and Kim Bond. The band was named by Brown, a film buff who had read an interview with Buster Keaton about the making of The General. Keaton claimed that after he did a stunt in which he screwed up and landed on his head, he had a blinding headache for the rest of his life. Ah. Eventually, Rick Brown left Blinding Headache to join Information, a combo formed by Minneapolis expats Chris Nelson, Gary Larson, and Phil Dre. Meanwhile, the jam sessions in the Britney continued. I occasionally participated, and this session evolved into Mofungo in the summer of 1979. Here's just a, a little snippet of this 2013 piece in The Eater, New York, by Robert, uh, on the closing of Maxwell's. It's a pretty great piece about that club, uh, and also uh, Mofungo's reunion show there with Yola Tango. So it's pretty easy to find, so people should check that out. But he starts it by saying, I was a bassist in a band called Mofungo from 1979 to 1993. We were headquartered in the East Village, and played a style of music called Swerve or Skronk, or sometimes just Noise. I, he mentions this Swerve genre in the interview mm -hmm. as well. Have you ever heard that before? I seem to recall reading something about it as it being that, you know, dancey no-wave stuff. Like, I always just, I guess, probably lump it in as no-wave. I, I feel like Swerve is maybe a subgenre of no-wave that I don't know with precision, but mm. I thought it was kind of that dancier no wave stuff rather than the real atonal dissonant i could be wrong yeah i've just i don't think i've ever heard that used before but i like i like skronk of course oh yeah yeah that one i've heard way more than swerve yeah uh he goes on we'd been inspired by bands like the contortions dna and gigged with acts that included sonic youth yola tango nico the minutemen the fall and pavement among many others we did probably 150 gigs and eight albums during that per period and performed at places around town that eventually became notorious. CBGB, Peppermint Lounge, Mud Club, Tier 3, The Ritz, Studio 8, and The Limelight. But whether in the New York area or on the road, there were no, no gigs we relished more than those at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. So Ryan, I'm just going to give the listeners a you know, a brief overview of the records leading up to this one. Uh, so you mentioned the family tree. So some of the names you'll hear in the interview, again, are uh, from the band Information. That's Chris Nelson, Philip Dre, and Rick Brown. And then from Blinding Headache, Jim Posner, Willie Klein, and Rick Brown. The first Mofungo release is a 7-inch, 
from 1979 called Elementary Particles on Living Legend Records. The band at that time was Jeff McGovern, Jim Posner, Robert Sietzema, and Willie Klein. Robert and Willie are kind of the only constants in the band that play on every album. Right. I'm not sure at in that era of the band, Ryan, I get the impression that the instruments were were not, maybe not specifically assigned at that pretty, point. Pretty fluid, I think, yeah. yeah. And not necessarily later on either, although the individual members did kind of end up with more designated you know, primary instruments on later records. This single's pretty rudimentary as, as far as instrumentation, at least compared to the later stuff. Almost entirely instrumental. Definite late 70s post-punk and no-wave influence. It was produced by Chris Stamey of the DBs, which you'll hear about in the interview. Then they had tape number one, a self-released cassette, uh, released in 1980 with information in Blinding Headache, also on the tape. We see the name Seth Gunning pop up here on organ. By 1981, they have the End of the World cassette with Robert on bass and guitar, Jeff McGovern on drums, Willie Klein on guitar and vocals, and Seth Gunning on organ. Jim Posner is gone by this point on second guitar. This recording and a few other albums uh, have popped up on a Mofungo Bandcamp page, so you can hear this record on their Bandcamp page. The organ's quite prominent in this era of the band, Mm -hmm. uh, and we start seeing more songs with vocals than without. And we see the name A.C. Chubb pop up, which is Anne Caroline Chubb on saxophone. Uh, This was... This recording was called from various sessions, four-track recordings in their practice space by Carol Parkinson, who you'll hear about in the interview, and some live stuff at the infamous Noise Fest at the White Columns Gallery, June 1981. Here's Robert Christgau uh, on this, this recording. Could pass for early television, which is totally true. Uh, and El Salvador is the political song of the year. Perhaps because the final 10 tracks weren't mixed by Chris Stamey, this 14-song, 30-minute tape does cry out for aspirin as it proceeds. He gave it a B plus. Uh, as you'll hear in the interview, Robert Christgau was a big champion of the band. Uh, the track he just mentions, though, uh, El Salvador, is a super cool track. Uh, in 1982, they released a far superior version as a single on Rough Trade of, of the song El Salvador. Same core band, Robert, Jeff, Willie, and Seth, along with A.C. Chubb on alto, and a new name, Dave Sewelson on baritone. Super killer single, uh, and also the first of what will become a real trademark of the group, which is uh, really leftist politics in the lyrics. Yeah. Or one of the first, anyways. Uh, next up is maybe what I would consider their first proper full-length, 1983's Out of Line, which came out on LP on Elliot Sharp's Zor label. Uh, Elliot was apparently uh, recruited by A.C. Chubb. Uh, And it's Zor 13. Uh, The Mofungo sound, such as it is, really starts to come together here for me. Uh, Same lineup as the previous release, and although he would soon play a more active role in the group, Elliot doesn't play on this record. Uh, he did. He didn't even produce it. Uh, the band produced it themselves. Here's Robert Christgau again. Where hardcore kids rail against empty leisure and media image, 
images, these working bohemians ground an analysis in the dismal daily grind. Their politics more or less match thick, unengratiating music that is dissonant but not quite amelodic, industrial but not at all mechanical. He gave this one a B. This one has songs like Migrant Assembly Line Worker, FBI, FBI Informant, He Sold His Soul, Wage Slave, so should give you a pretty good indication about some of the politics. It's funky at times, it's weird, post-punk, it's got that scronk and sax. Yeah. By 1985, they move out over to Twin Tone Coyote Records for the LP Frederick Douglass. Half of that album was recorded by Martin Bisi, produced by E Sharp. Uh, kind of the start of a relationship with Martin that would continue over, over several albums. Uh, we have a few lineup changes here. Jeff McGovern is gone from the drum stool, and Philip Dre is in, also playing some guitar and organ. Seth Gunning is gone. Uh, e Sharp plays alto and soprano sax on this record, and Chris Nelson joins on vocals and drums. Uh, guitar and trum trombone. Uh, Philip Dre and Chris Nelson were both in information and also around this time started the avant-garde band The Scene Is Now together uh, along with several others kind of from the scene including Sue Garner from uh, Fish and Roses, Two Mule Team, uh, Run On uh, who she played in uh, with her husband Rick Brown of Blinding Headache. So lots of those tentacles that we see in these little you know, mini scenes within a scene. Uh, the scene is now, I know, I know we've talked about them before, several great albums on Twin Tones, uh, New York-based avant-garde subsidiary Lost Records that people should check out. Here's Robert Christgau again. What would a stranger make of this friendly, but apparently overwrought and tuneless cacophony? Wish I were sure she he'd find it as winning as I do. Canny, complex, and suggestive structures. A minus. This one's good. Uh, the Frederick Douglass record. Uh, very bass centric, almost pill esque at times for me. Atonal in in the best way. It's got songs like "Don't Shoot That Junk Into Your Arm Again, Please." Uh, Ronnie thinks he can rock is a, is a cool one. Uh, an almost surfy song called "Brazil's Long List of Shame." <laughs> Those song titles. Yeah. Even naming the album after a former slave-turned-reformer and abolitionist and eventually the first African-American nominated for vice president of the U.S. Yeah. Very political. Yep. Uh, in 1986, they switch over to Lost Records for Messenger Dogs of the Gods, recorded with, with Martin B.C. again. Uh, solid lineup this time, Robert, Willie, E Sharp, and Chris Nelson, who's handling all the drums and some vocals by this point. Kind of, for me, like the definitive lineup, I would say. They, we start seeing some older folk songs by Woody Guthrie and artists like that, that, like they do Big Rock Candy Mountain on this record. Here's Robert Christgau again. Both funny and witty, unassumingly compassionate, glancing fondly off the folk music they took and the rock they play. They sound less weird the more you listen. A minus. Uh, in 1987, on uh, the label Lost, again, End of the World Part 2. This one is the same lineup uh, with Philip Dre playing on one track, Sue, Sue Garner again on a few. 
Here's Robert Sietzema again from the Perfect Sound Forever blog, 1997, on Elliot's role in the band. He says, Elliot Sharp occupied a unique place in the band since he was a professional musician and most of his income was derived from touring the world as an avant-garde performer. Hence, he was unable to attend the band's twice-weekly rehearsals, Tuesdays and Fridays, 6 to 9 p.m., a schedule that we had in place for nearly the entire history of the band. Whenever we had a gig coming up, he would come to a rehearsal or two, and being a quick study, he'd develop these incredible parts which seemed to meld the songs together. We abandoned Lost Records when Elliot got us a recording contract with SST, which was the label of the Minutemen, one of the many bands we most admired, and Ryan, who they cover on the next record. Mm -hmm. The contract would advance us 3,000 clams to record each album, which seemed like a king's ransom to us, and was more than enough to get each new record in the can, as we used to say. Perhaps more important, the new product would be released on vinyl, tape, and CD, a new medium for us, and the one that has kept our products in the marketplace. I can't tell you how weird it is to see the Mofungo CDs bugged and work in HMV, the Virgin Record Store, and Tower. Of course, that doesn't mean we've seen a penny from either product or received any accounting in years. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that quote made, made me think about what Mark Pickerel told us a few episodes back. Yeah, for sure. All right, Ryan, do you want to throw it over to Robert? Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Robert Sietzema. Robert, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. All right, so we're talking about the SST era of Mofungo, but I want to go back, Robert, and I want to... We were talking a little bit before we started. You're not from New York. Where are you from? Um, like most people in the uh, New York music movements of the last century, late in the last century... Um, I'm from the Midwest. I uh, I was born in St. Joseph, Michigan. I grew up in Chicago and Minneapolis, and then went to high school and college in Texas, and went to grad school in Wisconsin, and then moved to New York forever in 1977. So uh, I was a, a Midwesterner, and many of the people that lived in that were colonizing the East Village <laughs> at the time were, and I'm using that term advisedly, uh, but we're from the Midwest, and they kind of got together, and you'd have kind of little uh, affinity clubs, not official, but little gr neighborhood groups that were from Minnesota or uh, California sometimes, or Illinois or Texas, and it's still kind of that way now that some of the most active New Yorkers are expatriates, right. uh, not to mention all of the immigrants and the uh, intellectuals that have come from, you know, Europe, South America, Brazil, uh, West Africa, etc. Okay, why New York? In those days, if you didn't want to kind of live in the town of your parents, and I'm sure it must have been the same for you, you went to one coast or the other. Right. A certain kind of person went to New York, and the other kind of person went to California. And uh, things were much more limited then. Those were the arts centers, and things were not so... Uh, decentralized at that time. So uh, I naturally went to New York. Um, I had been, you know, taught to hate New York as a Midwesterner and to never want to go there. <laughs> and of course, when I finished graduate school, I didn't really finish graduate school. When I left graduate school, to be more accurate, uh, after five years, 
I went right to New York and it was, uh, you know, I was following a girlfriend who had gone there previously, but there was also a perverse sense that this was for a Midwesterner, the craziest place to go. (laughs) Okay. Now, are you playing music before you go to New York? Never. Never. I mean, my mother made me take piano lessons Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, but I, I had no affinity for it. And one could argue I had little affinity for it when I joined a rock band. (laughs) Um, but I, am not a person who is uh, innately talented or I, at least I don't think so. Okay. So how do you fall in with some of the people and we'll, we'll get into, into some of the names, but that form kind of the blinding headache, uh, information, mofungo scene. I was working at this, uh, kind of like independent publishing company, which, Having come out of grad school in English, I was very lucky to land a job almost immediately working for this crazy publishing company under this guy named Harold Hart, who uh, who published Summerhill and several other really, uh, you know, he, he lived and worked on what is now the NYU campus, and his uh, publishing companies was there, and in, the, in his odd hours, he would like pseudomoniously write dirty limericks and publish them. So it was really a company that published books of dirty poems and limericks, but also did all of these swipe file books. And I was hired as a picture editor. And while I was there, there was this rather odd fellow who always wore a kind of a a dirty white shirt that looked like he'd gotten it from someone else and kind of baggy pants and uh, his name was Rick Brown, and I immediately became friends with him because I'd never seen anybody like him. And uh, and he and his friends, you know, whereas I had been into the kind of psychedelic drug scene in college and grad school and smoke marijuana and stuff, I always did it, you know, with groups of people. But he and his friends would, like, take blotter acid and then go into some stinking basement club and like hang out all night and to me that was the antithesis of what you were supposed to do you know you're supposed to take the lsd and then frolic in nature or something so um so i became friends with him and that was a a, the door to all of these other people that happened to find themselves in east village and um it was it was a, a pretty diverse group at that time you know, and, you know, for that time, I mean, we had gay people, we had women, we had black people, we had Hispanic people, uh, but not to the extent that we probably should have, given the fact that we were usurping what had been basically a Puerto Rican neighborhood. Right. Um, this was the East Village, and in those days, everybody, or at least all the boys and some of the girls, wanted to be in rock bands. You know, we were, uh, that was the heyday of... Uh, of the cramps and talking heads and blondie. And so we had examples of these bands, you know, and of course the, you know, the, all the other bands at the same time, but we had examples of bands and we could see them, them walking around on the streets. And we thought, well, this is cool. We better do this. And pretty soon, uh, we had formed into bands. And, uh, at that time, the late seventies and early eighties, Unless you were carrying a guitar or some kind of drum case or something, you weren't shit. I mean, (laughs) in other words, we were all kind of posers to one extent or another. Um, We quickly assorted ourselves into kind of groups with different aspirations. But at that time, 
it was wonderful and we formed our own clubs and we played our own gigs and we played on the rooftops and we played on the streets you know it was it was a heady time mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile people all around us were dying of heroin overdoses and kind of their bodies littering the pavement mm-hmm. musically were you how primed were you for some of this kind of stuff were you like what were you listening to pre new york um well my particular contribution of which i'm very proud uh, came from the fact that I had a very close friend at the University of Wisconsin named Nate Mackey, who was recently profiled in either the Times or maybe it was a New Yorker or, yeah, New Yorker. A, uh, and we were really into, he introduced me to world music before it had the name world music. And we would, were collecting all of these kind of like Deutsche Grammophon kind of academic recordings of uh, of string bands from South America and tribal ensembles from West Africa and all this kind of stuff. And we immersed ourselves in that material and listened to that all the time. Plus, you know, at the time, Madison had only one band that I knew of. It was after the, you know, Ben Sidron days. So uh, it was slim pickings there. Although I do remember when Lou Reed came through town, everyone is very excited. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in his post-development days. So um, I was, and I listened to classical music. I listened to a lot of jazz at that time. Uh, many of the jazz artists that I was to run up against in New York, uh, I had already heard their stuff in, in uh, Madison. But, I, you know, I definitely was not into the rock of the era. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I had been tremendously as a younger kid, like really into rock. Sounds like you were well positioned to, you know, get into some, some really avant-garde music though, by that time. Yes. Especially since part of the avant-gardeness was, uh, was motivated by literally not being able to right. play our instruments. Right. Um, <laughs> we would pick up instruments, sometimes amazing instruments in junk shops. We would make our own instruments. We would, find them, borrow them, pick them up, and we would just, you know, also, as as a person who mainly played bass during most of the Mofungo era, um, you know, I couldn't help but be aware of, of funk music, which was so important at that time. And to be a funk bass player, basically, you could just, like, play the same line, infectious line, over and over and over again for the whole song. So <laughs> you didn't have to pay too much attention to chord changes and, you know, and different tunes and stuff. So, uh, and I had no idea what the function of a bass player was in an ensemble. I mean, I know now, and, and with some regret, I look back, that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't play at times or couldn't play more conventionally. Yeah, I think the funk influence kind of doesn't get enough credit. You, I mean, you look up the road at the go-go scene in DC that started a little bit later or like conk conk or the talking heads or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Definite funk influence for sure. We called our music no wave. We called it swerve, but we definitely acknowledged the jazz underpinnings and were tremendously, I mean, those were the kind of vinyl albums that we listened to endlessly, you know, in addition to like New York dolls and stuff like that. So is it Rick Brown that kind of introduces you to, you know, Jim McGovern, Willie Klein, Jim Posner? 
let's see. I, I, yeah, a bunch of those people, he, he, he was going to NYU at the time and he knew a bunch of those people. But once I met them, my, my relationship with them was at times independent. Willie Klein and Dave, somebody or other, uh, I can't remember his last name at the moment, and, and Seth Gunning, who was an early member of, uh, of Mafunga, they lived in an NYU dorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, dorm life was different than it had been for me at University of Texas and at University of Wisconsin. There was a gallery in the building that they stayed at. Uh, one of the one of the roommates, Seth, uh, lived on a bed of newspapers in the in the closet. So all of these people are like you know unusual personalities. Yep. <laughs> Tell me about blinding headache. Describe blinding headache to me. I've never heard them. Never heard the group. Um, blinding headache was a. Uh, they were influenced by a whole bunch of things. It was Rick, it was Jim, it was Willie Klein. Uh, they were united by the fact that two of them drove a midnight truck from Connecticut down to downtown New York with the Spanish language newspaper, El Diario. And when they were done, sometimes before, they would get the truck early. It was a rental truck. And they would pull it up to this uh, place called Sewer Beach next to Stuyvesant Town. That was their name for it. It was just like this kind of con- concrete outcropping that hung above the East River and was always kind of in danger of breaking off. And they formed the band, and then they would uh, they would practice in the back of that truck. Now, they had these portable amplifiers called pig noses Mm -hmm. that allowed them to play a lot of their gigs like on the street corners they would go like to astor place or something like that and set up they would play at parties they would play anywhere that they could but their their music was deliberate it was concrete it was sometimes tuneless uh it's sometimes i remember rick brown who was the drummer he would sometimes just play a single snare drum he eventually added a you know a ragtag group of percussion instruments uh he would sometimes play like toy synthesizers and and you know little tiny pianos and all sorts of stuff that was common to the bands at that time to use improvised or appropriated instruments that were not part of the normal rock ensemble um their music was angular uh they they were influenced by groups like wire who I remember had a, an album where all the songs were one minute long. Yeah. I mean, the idea then was to like shit or get off the pot. You like, <laughs> you play your song, you get it over with and you get the fuck to the next song. So their music, um, I'm not sure, you know, by standards of accessibility, uh, you had to believe in it to love it. Right. Uh, I'm sure if you just, Although looking back on Mafungo things and blinding headache things and information things, uh, information was of the three bands, the one most capable of putting a conventional song together. Mm. And they occasionally would do that. But, you know, with like abject uh, or humorous or arch lyrics, you know, and all of these bands were quirky. They were, you know, many times the bands like the Velvet Underground and stuff are are mentioned as being kind of like amateurish in a way, following conventional song structures, you know, but 
these three bands, Mafungal, Blinding Headache, and Information, were uh, were beyond the pale. I mean, they were playing things that were intentionally obtuse or intentionally opaque. They were pushing the limits. I, I hate to use terms like that, but pushing the limits of what songs could be, and especially what kinds of songs could be enjoyed. What is now known as the no-wave scene, or maybe was at that time already, were you aware of that as kind of its own scene, and did you feel like you were a part of it, or was that more in retrospect where you got lumped in with those bands? No, we were. Um, we felt ourselves to be completely dedicated to that genre because the name was invented by Christopher Nelson, by Chris Nelson. Um, you know, all of us, or many of us, had one leg in the conventional world and one leg in the bohemian world, and his leg in the conventional world was that he was actually an art director for a rock magazine uh, called New York Rocker, mm-hmm. which has been largely forgotten now, but was rather well-respected at the time. It, it, it bore a lot in common with, like, NME. You know, we admired the rock journalists of London. Right. And so he, you know, would be sitting there working during all day at his job, you know, laying things out, wielding the T-square, and then go and play, you know, this kind of music. But um, he invented the term no wave as a protest against new wave, of course, Uh, you know, and he had put that on the cover of a rocker, a New York rocker one month. Uh, Andy Schwartz was the editor. He came from Westchester, and he was, I think, bankrolled by his parents. But if you can get your hands on a copy or look online, I'm sure there's copies of New York Rocker. You know, we were all associated with it one way or the other. I mean, my initial interest in being in these bands was visual. Uh, I was, at the time, a very serious 35-millimeter photographer, and I started going to punk rock bands you know, for the same reason I admired Rick Brown's dress, you know, it was like, man, this is really weird looking, <laughs> you know, this, these photographs are great. You know, people are like spitting onto the audience and, and, you know, flagging people with beer and, you know, and, and doing even more extreme things. So, uh, to me, the visual elements were as important as the musical ones, because I was not much of a musician. But I mean, that's the beauty of it, is that it was supposed to go against the grain of, uh, of what conventional music had been. It was, uh, you know, we claimed to hate the conventional rock music of the time. Well, and the interesting thing is, although I'm interested in, in any art that you've created, sounds like you went to, to New York maybe thinking of getting into literature and or visual arts and arguably you're most well known for being a musician. It, it's weird. Although, I mean, I'm much better known as a food writer now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, sure. But at the time, I definitely, photography was my main art outlet and I still have boxes upon boxes. I was a really great black and white printer and I still have thousands of black and white photographs of the bands of the time. Oh, wow. The problem is everybody, everybody else does too. (laughs) I mean, it's like that, that was not, you know, that was not a difficult thing to amass. And many people have become very well known as Mm -hmm. photographers of that era. So, but to me, yeah, punk was instantly fascinating, even though I didn't really understand it. And neither did anyone that was trying to be a punk here. 
Right. They didn't really get the working class roots of it in England or whatever. The clash aesthetic. Is that what you mean? Even the clash had prettified it and transformed it into something middle class. I mean, the original, the very original punks were a ragtag group of of people that, you know, put bobby pins in their cheeks and wore black and wandered around acting depressed all the time. You know, it was a stylistic movement, as you know, and you can see it like in various forms of English cinema and stuff. You, know, you can see what punks came out of. To me, the, the punks were analogous to a group, groups when I was in Minneapolis called the Greasers, mm. who, uh, you know, wore leather boots and black pants and put pomade in their hair and had duck's ass haircuts and stuff and and wore leather and tried to beat people up. Um, you know, those people, the punks that I first met here seemed a little bit like that, only with a lot of the, the actual anger erased and the aggressiveness. Although there is that, like, shooting beer all over the audience and <laughs> spitting on people and, you know, right. and shooting up heroin and stuff like that. I mean, it was all... all they had reduced drug use to a style. It seems like, or you you'll most often hear that blinding headache morphed into mofungo. Is that how you would describe it? I think that's a fair term. Um, just because people would leave and other people would join the band, I remember mofungo came out of a bunch of dormitory room jam sessions uh, where personnel from blinding headache would be there or not be there. Uh, you know, Rick Brown ended up going to information with Chris Nelson, who had actually been in a conventional rock band when he was going to Southwest Minnesota State University. You know, there were actual musicians, I think, mm -hmm. among us. Uh, some good ones, some bad. I mean, there were others to infiltrate later on, but most of us were naive musicians. I mean, we, uh, and yeah, Mafungo came out of jam sessions that included those people and other people like Amy Rigby, who, uh, who later was to become, you know, a, a kind of a country Western Brooklyn style musician and to have a couple of albums to her name. I mean, we had a large group of people who kind of joined uh, indifferently and others that stuck. I mean, I really wanted to stick because it, it made me feel like I belonged right. in this group of East Villagers. <laughs> okay, so for the first single, Elementary Particles, 1979, I'm assuming Living Legend Records is the band? That's right, yes. Okay. The, the cover, if you have one a cover with a sleeve, um, I was doing these swipe files, and a lot of times our early posters and our early uh, album art would come out of this job I was doing curating groups of 19th century line art images for use by free that were, you know, for free that were put in these books that I compiled. How does Chris Stamey get involved? We were all, there was this amazing, I think it's still there, building in the Garment Center called the Music Building at the corner of 38th and 8th Avenue. It was run by this former saxophone player turned real estate guy. And what he did was there were like six fabric lofts per floor where people used to sell wholesale different kinds of fabric. 
and he turned these all into studios so you could rent a studio I think at the time it seemed a little expensive, but the way that we reacted to that, and these studios were like 12 feet by 10 feet. They were small, but they had uh, they had windows that went onto the street, large windows, and they were all dusty, and everything was falling apart, and the paint was peeling. And there was one this filthy bathroom at the end of the hall. And um, we, it was eight floors, which is like, you know, altogether probably uh, 30 or 40 studios. And so we would get together with other bands in our set and we would uh, co-rent these spaces and and then we would divvy up the time. So typically they would be used, you know, not 24 hours a day, but, you know, 16, 18 hours a day. You know, you would go in, say hi to your fan friends who were just leaving and then say hi to another group of friends as you were leaving three hours later. In other words, we practiced in three-hour slots three times a day. Now, this building has never been chronicled appropriately because so many musicians pass through it. I can remember seeing Madonna in the elevator all the time, having just come from, was it Indiana or Ohio? She was a a timid girl. Uh, This is before her first big single, but we all knew that she was really good. Uh, And I think her first disco single hit, uh, Like a Virgin, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just admired the hell out of her. There were all these other bands in there, too. And Chris Stamey, his band, was in there because we had met them somewhere and we were sharing the, uh, the loft with them on the sixth floor called 606. It it was a wild scene because you can imagine the cacophony of like 35 (laughs) bands playing in one building at once. And even today, if you walk up 8th Avenue, it's just like a giant speaker turned on its end playing just like the devil himself is in there. You know, you'll hear heavy metal and you'll hear jazz and you'll hear like disco music and all these things coming out at once. So that was a, that was amazing. We were in there for pretty much the entire, uh, the entire time the band was there and one day it was so hot during the summer you had to leave the doors open there was no air conditioning and you would uh we were in there practicing one day and andy warhol walked in and he took a look at this flowered couch um that the drummer from uh chris damey and the dbs was had slept on regularly oftentimes one member of one of the bands would be living there because you know, we would be between apartments and uh, or couldn't afford an apartment. And uh, Andy Warhol looked at the couch and said, nice couch, and then turned around and walked out. Uh, <laughs> okay. At what point, I think it's probably around this time that we're talking about right now, you start backing up Nico for some shows. How did that happen? Uh, it was uh, this, there was this former Yardbirds producer called Giorgio Gamelski, who had a townhouse up in Chelsea, either on 24th or 25th Street. And he had a, uh, he made a rock club in his basement. At the time, many gigs were in these unlicensed subterranean rock clubs. And um, we'd been hitting up uh, Giorgio to, to do a gig there for a while. And uh, he offered this spot opening up for nico and i can't remember whether it was two or three nights or whatever but uh you know it, it 
we we love the idea of of opening for Nico, of course. But every night, you know, we would go to Giorgio after the show was over. Nico would usually kind of get up on the stage after our set, and she would kind of hesitatingly play one or two songs and then dissolve into tears and be conducted off the stage. And we discovered, beginning of the first night, that uh, that Giorgio was just giving her the entire amount of door proceeds so she could go out and score heroin. And uh, we were madder about it then than we were subsequently. I mean, we didn't. <laughs> After a while, it seemed like a good story. So, yes, Giorgio Gamalski, Yardbirds, Nico, 24th Street, uh, just another in a string of bum gigs. Right. I, although I think it was fairly well, you know, attended. There were many big ticket gigs, and by big ticket I mean ones that caused some, uh, you know, excitement that may have been worth going to. We we played at the White Column show where Sonic Youth got their start. Um, mm. We played in all sorts of places. We, we actually even played at places like the mud club and the Ritz and these, cause these big ticket clubs, they, they didn't know who to book, you know, and they were always looking for the next big thing and they were willing at least for an evening to mistake us for the next big thing. So, right. you know, we, we did pretty well. Any we got paid a lot more than bands get played. Now we typically would get $500. Wow. Uh, any standout shows like that for other bands to say that you, you opened up for at that time? Oh, we opened up for all sorts of bands like Aztec Camera. I mean, I don't even know who they are now, but I remember that was considered to be a, a big gig. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we opened up for the fall. After a while, we would kind of like host the week. I think we played a couple of gigs with them. Uh, we played with Ut. We played uh, all sorts of all sorts of amazing. There was a big interplay. You know, English bands were especially welcome here. And we would often see them at uh, at CBGB or some other club. And eventually we were playing gigs with them and stuff, although we never went to England, of course. So. Right. How do you get involved with Rough Trade, speaking of England? One of our early advocates was, uh, was Robert Criscow, hmm. who at the time styled himself the dean of American rock critics. And whether he actually did invent rock criticism while he worked at Newsday, I'll never know. But uh, he was very, very kind to us. He uh, he would give our recorded products grades. I mean, he was famous for giving grades, A, B, C, whatever, in his Chris Gow's Consumer Guide, which was a month, monthly feature of, uh, of the Village Voice. And um, he liked us tremendously. He came to our gigs. We didn't know what to make of him. He gave us great grades, even though when he would publish the collected books of, um, you know, of his criticism, which were was called consumer guides, mm-hmm. he would often knock us down a grade or two. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, albums that once got an A, when we would open up the book, it would be a B or something. So, uh, um, he eventually uh, was the one that recommended. Uh, or maybe he wasn't, I'm not sure, but I eventually myself did go to work for the Village Voice as a restaurant critic, and he was my editor. Mm. He was a very, very fine editor, though a quirky one. He uh, he partly shaped the writing style that I have today, if I have any writing style. Uh, he was the one that, uh, that recommended uh, or insisted that Jeff Travis 
bring out one of our records, which was the uh, the EP, El Salvador. Okay, and a name that popped up a few times in a few different roles with artwork, recording, producing, is Carol Parkinson. Who's Carol? Uh, Carol Parkinson was a friend of mine in, um, in Wisconsin, a, a girlfriend of a friend, but also a close friend on her own. Uh, she was a Wisconsinite. She came here um, in the Whitney Visiting Fellows Program. Uh, she had a loft in Soho. That was the first time in 1974 that I ever came to New York City. I stayed at her loft in Soho, which was provided by the museum, but it was one of these old-fashioned rickety lofts with a cage-type elevator and just like no rooms to speak of other than some kind of makeshift ones in these grand loft spaces. And I remember being in Soho and walking up to Houston Street and thinking that that was kind of the northern edge of town. I mean, I knew nothing because I'd come into New York in the middle of the night with a bunch of friends and I was asleep. So I hadn't undergone the trip all down the West Side Highway and I didn't know about Midtown. I thought Soho was the beginning and end of the city. Um, anyway, she uh, eventually worked her way up. She was she was famous for for doing and the reason she got the Whitney Fellowship was that she made um, these Sony Porta pack or whatever the name of the video camera was. She made black and white videos, and uh, the one she was most famous for was one of her washing her panties in the sink, which was considered extremely erotic at the time. Although I'm not sure, so sure it is now. I wish I could see those videos now because she was a very talented person. Eventually, she was able to work her way up to New York Hood by um, by becoming the director of the public access synthesizer studio known as PASS, P-A-S-S. In the days when people couldn't afford the Buclas and all of those bulky room-sized synthesizers, they made them available to artists. And we did some recording with her. She, uh, But mainly she was a route of access for us to experiment with synthesizers. The out-of-line record is on Elliot Sharp's label. How does Elliot come into the picture? Elliot was a tremendously respected uh, improvisational musician who longed to be a producer of edge edge cred bands and who had great talent as a producer. And that was one of the things he liked to do. So we presented raw material that is, was of interest to him in the early days. He would play on a song or two while producing the albums. Eventually he became a full-blown member of the band uh, and our permanent producer. Uh, his influence caused us to take a different direction several times. The thing was, he he longed to be like a heavy metal guitarist. Mm -hmm. So uh, we allowed him and immensely enjoyed having him play these tasty guitar licks that we could never imagine playing ourselves. So, And we kind of grokked to the fact that it was unique to have this mixture of elements. Uh, but, you know, when we do get to Bugged here, Bugged is is an album that probably more than any other resembles a conventional rock album. Mm -hmm, for sure. The Out of Line, that has one of my 35mm <laughs> photographers on the cover with the guy stepping over the pipe or whatever. Ah, okay. Interesting. Okay. 
So some of the records leading up to Bugged, Frederick Douglass, Messenger Dogs of the Gods, etc., they're on, correct me if I'm wrong, but like Coyote Records, Lost Records are both kind of associated with Twin Tone. They're like, Twin Tone's the parent They're company. both Twin Tone's subsidiaries, yeah. yeah. Uh, Coyote was Steve, uh, what's his name? Steve, he was almost the mayor of Hoboken. Uh, he was the one that had the, uh, the wonderful rock club Maxwell's. Mm, okay. um, he, he, he was the head of Coyote, and he was associated with this other guy that in the heyday of Hoboken, they kind of were the motivating powers behind the music scene in Hoboken, which you know came to include most famously Yola Tango. So Steve had this subsidiary called Coyote, and uh, we were on Coyote, but eventually, you know, Chris Nelson and other members of the set were actually from Minneapolis. So they knew all of these people at Twin Tone, and, uh, and they eventually got uh, their own Twin Tone imprint, and that was lost, I think. We had several albums that were on Twin Tone, and Ki- Coyote, we eventually left Coyote, had our own Twin Tone imprint. There were other albums on that label, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, some of similar artists, like The Scene Is Now, Fish and Roses. Oh, I know what it was. Lost was our own label, but Twin Tone distributed it, certain of its products. I think that's the correct way to say it. Okay. Because I think Lost, I think the, the, the name was invented by Chris Nelson. So by this point, Chris is in the band by, you know, Messenger Dogs of the Gods. Yes, that's true. Okay. And so was Phil Dre. I think just on that album, he was another uh, refugee from information. But I think he was only on one Mafungo album, and then uh, it, after he left, it was more or less a threesome plus Elliot Sharp. Another name I've seen pop up, Dave Sewelson and his group Noise Are Us. Tell me about Dave and, and Noise Are Us. Dave was a friend of ours, uh, a marvelous saxophone player. He had been on in an ensemble, like a quartet, a brass quartet that was on one of the other earlier products. So we used him as a session musician from time to time. He was a scenester who was often around and a, and a close friend of ours. So um, I don't remember much other than that, other than that he appeared on a bunch of Mofungo products mm-hmm. and usually played an alto or a, what's the one that's, below the alto. Is the alto the big one? Only a baritone, maybe? He played a big saxophone. Yeah. Yeah, a baritone, a berry. Yeah. And A.C. Chubb? A.C. Chubb, uh, heir to the Chubb insurance fortune, was uh, an early member of Mofungo. She appeared uh, on some of the early products, uh, certainly on End of the World. Maybe after that, was she on uh, Out of Line? I don't remember. I, would have I don't to think run so. And, yeah, no, I don't no. think so. By then she was gone. Uh, she went to live, she lived in a teepee for a while, and then she went to live in New Orleans. Uh, we liked her tremendously. Famously, we were at the Ritz uh, playing a gig, which was a really big ticket gig, for us at least, and someone poured beer on her head. Oh. I remember that. So. Oh, wow. But she also did some singing and did some composing too. It was a, she was a, a an excellent member of the band. Okay. As was Seth Gunning. 
Chuck mm-hmm. Gunning is an, is another character who was very, very influential. Uh, he played a Farfisa organ. He was from a small town in Ohio. His father was an English professor who invented the fog index. And uh, he eventually uh, became paranoid and returned to Ohio. I mean, clinically paranoid. I mean, all, all of us had various mental defects, uh, some more than others. But um, and he, he left, but he was he was he composed some just amazing songs. The Frederick Douglass LP I read was released on April Fool's Day in a PBS special. Explain, explain that to me. It sounds true, but I have no idea about that story. You have to ask <laughs> okay. someone else. But it okay. sounds completely possible. Um, but I, I have to be a little proud of our emphasis on some of these heroes of the African-American Revolution. We put out that album, you know, uh, Chris Nelson, who had been an art student at NYU, uh, made the painting of, of uh, Frederick Douglass on the cover. And um, I'm, I'm very proud of that album. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of our albums had a left-wing bent. For sure they did, um, yeah. You know, maybe it make, makes them dry, maybe it makes them obsolete, I don't know, but we were all committed leftists. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that comes across for sure. Uh, you're the food critic, so describe what mofongo is to me. Uh, is it good, and where can someone get good mofongo? Uh, it's most often found in, um, in Dominican restaurants, it was, uh, although it may have been originally Cuban, it consists of mashed up plantains, often with lard or with bacon or some pork product in there, and then a gravy poured over the top. It's often served with seafood, kind of as uh, the same way you might serve meatballs over spaghetti or something. Mm. Um, it, it is a it's a important dish, and uh, lucky luckily for us. It, it was actually Phil Dre who recommended that we use that name when we couldn't come up with a name for the band, and he misspelled it. So the misspelling makes it possible for people to find. In other words, we put, instead of M-O-F-O-N-G-O, we spelled it M-O-F-U-N-G-O, oh. putting fun in the middle in a kind of ironic <laughs> sense. But um, you can still get it, you know, anywhere. I go right to Washington Heights and go to one of the uh, Dominican restaurants there uh, mm-hmm. or Cuban Dominican restaurants and, you know, get it in its plainest form. Um, okay. It's good. I'm, I'm proud to be named after that. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about Bugged. So it was recorded, at, I'm assuming, at BC Studios. I know Martin recorded it um, as he did several right. of the previous albums. Tell me about working with Martin. Uh, we loved Martin uh, and still do. Uh even though I haven't really seen him more than once or twice in the last decade. Um, he was a cryptic figure. He dressed all in black. He, had, he was from Argentina. He wore a belt that had Argentinian gold coins embedded in it. He wore a leather headband. Um, he bought the studio supposedly because his parents had been killed in a car wreck in, um, in Argentina, and that capitalized... Uh, Nevertheless, the um, the studio was at third and third in um, in what the the area now known as Gowanus. At the time, it was between Carroll Gardens and uh, and Park Slope in a kind of a no man's land. 
Uh, it's in a, uh, a building that was uh, historically, it lay along the, the twisting Gunawakawanis canals, uh, which are filthy and just decrepit and look like something out of Dickens. And uh, the building itself, which had a courtyard, was a munitions factory during the Civil War. So it was really, really old. And, uh, and he had this kind of subterranean studio. Uh, we loved it. We loved working there. There was a big couch. Famously, he had the Gamble and Huff 16-track board, you know, where all of those uh, Philadelphia sound hits had been made. So mm-hmm. this to us was heavenly. What we would do would, um, you know, record an album in perhaps four or five sessions we do basic tracks for a couple of sessions, and these sessions would last like five or six hours. We, pay, you know, we paid for the recording ourselves because why not? Right. It was just not that expensive. I think our albums often cost us about three thousand, four thousand dollars to do. Uh, I can't remember. We had a good deal because BC and Elliot Sharp were friends, and we had kind of connections with the people that recorded there regularly, going all the way back to uh, Giorgio Gomelsky. So at any rate, uh, you know, we would go in there uh, often in the evenings or on the weekends, I think at like maybe just $50 an hour or $150 an hour. I can't remember what it was, but I think these albums were generally recorded in 40 hours or less. I'm not sure when the last time you you heard the Bugged album is, so I'm really going to test your your memory here, but some of these tracks... actually tried to listen to the YouTube recording and I could barely make out any of it, but mm. uh, it made me, if I only had a, a turntable, it would be fun to listen to it again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. By the way, I have a crib here when I opened up, I have a few copies of the album and I opened one up and this thing popped out that not only has the lyrics and the names of the tracks, but it has this like ridiculous justification for every one of the tracks that are written out <laughs> explaining what the track means which is like bizarre written by you i believe me uh my god i hope not but probably <laughs> if, if i if it was me that wrote it then it was at the request of the other uh, band members or something <laughs> i don't know i okay. think i would have been opposed to that yeah, well, the first song, number one for Takeoff, you, you and I were chatting about it a little bit before we started recording, uh, and you mentioned kind of the leftist politics of the band. Uh, right. Love the essay uh, about the union of air traffic controllers taking a certification vote, but they're all a bunch of scabs. <laughs> right. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> You could never tell that by just listening to the very spare lyrics, which only run to four uh, four lines, and one of them is da 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 da. Now I'm I'm listening to this, and I'm you know I'm pretty sure I can hear kind of Elliot doing his thing. I, I'm assuming he's playing guitar predominantly in the band by this point. Well, um, Willie, who is our main guitar player had a, a very wonderful invented style that was very ratchety and very uh, kind of like a little, not off-key, but off-kilter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very rhythmic. So I would say you can hear Willie's 
uh, rhythm guitar in it. So it's both Elliot and, and Willie playing guitars. Okay. One in the conventional style, one in a very unconventional style. Right. And for the writing of a song like this, like would somebody be bringing, for all of these songs, is somebody bringing the riffs in and you're working that up as a group or is, you know, someone bringing in a complete song? Um, everything was different for every song, but there are obvious Willie songs, and this is an obvious Willie song. Okay. Uh, very spare of lyric. He did both the lyric and the, and the music. Yeah, this is a Willie song, no question about it. The Pope is a Potato, another great story. I believe the title is a reference to a unfortunate or fortunate maybe a t-shirt misprint when the Pope visited Miami. Something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> not quite sure what it says here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the misprinted t-shirts and our, you know, our hatred for organized religion. Uh, the Pope Mobile fits in there. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of, the lyrics are more absurdist than I remember, but my guess is that most people wouldn't hear the lyrics when we were singing the song. Right. <laughs> And I think that's Willie singing okay. on the song, too. Willie did most of the vocals, I think, in the band? Well, Willie, who was the, the by far the cutest member of the band and the obvious front man, despite his sheepishness, he, um, it was less so as the band progressed. But yeah, he was the lead singer and the guitarist. He was the, the front man. He was the one we were most likely to push out in front of us as we hung our heads and stared at our shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, although, you know, the next one, Hello, Ollie, is an obvious Chris Nelson song. Uh, what makes it an obvious Chris Nelson song? He has a wonderful kind of plucked chicken voice. Mm. Um, it's not atonal, it's very tonal, but it, it, it's tonal in a weird sort of way. I, can't, I don't know how to describe it. You would probably have to have an... Uh, you know, an audiologist explain exactly what his voice is, but, um, but, you know, but he's making fun of, uh, what's his name? Uh, I, I was assuming the song was about Oliver North. It is. Thank you yeah. very much. It yeah. is Oliver North. The next song, All I've Got's Gone, which is interesting. You're trading off verses. I'm, I'm assuming you're even in the mix on this one vocally. I am indeed. Yeah. Um, Thanks for noticing. Um, <laughs> this is one of the songs that I curated. I became uh, much more interested in in labor political songs from the Dust Bowl and before. I started bringing these songs into the band. We started doing versions of them. Uh, the most famous is Long-Haired Preachers. But uh, this was a song that I found on some dusty old album that I'd had for years. and Or maybe I found it online. I don't know. Was there even an online back then? <laughs> Not quite. So Not quite yet. I must, have, uh, I must have found it somewhere. You know, I think I found it in my increasingly arcane album collection. I had a bunch of those albums, kind of folk, folkways albums about, you know, singers from the 1930s and 1920s and and this was one of those. It, it's just, it's a plaintive song of have-nots complaining about uh, bankers and all that kind of stuff. And the scene is now has a similar roster of, uh, you know, of 
hand-wringing songs, like their song, Bank. You know, who owns the land? The bank owns the land. Whose tired hand is closing the gate? They're much more poetic, however. Right. So, um, But this is a real song by real people. In this case, Dave Macon and Ernest Stoneman. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next track, Hosting a War, really built around, to me, a bass pattern that really sits in kind of a really weird pocket with the drums, but it, it works. Again, it makes me picture stuff like this just being jammed out in a, in a practice session. You're right. That is one of the albums, uh, that's one of the songs on the album that w- was brought in is just the germ of an idea. An even better example, perhaps, although if you say that that song is successful, I am grateful for that observation. Um, the, the 13th song, the last song on the second side, is one where Elliot, damn him, made us just like an inventive song on the spot. It was like we got to the end of the evening, we accomplished what we'd hoped to accomplish, and he said, well, let's do a song. <laughs> you know, and him coming from, he coming from a improvisational background was in quite a different, you know, headspace than we were. So to me, I was such a recalcitrant performer that, you know, unless I'd been able to practice something over and over again, I was quite unsure of myself. So I think that in the guided tour, and probably in this one, it started with one of my bass lines. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can tell that I'm not like a conventional bass player. Um, but yeah, it, it is. Uh, I, I think that was a pretty good. And you can hear, I think, Willie's guitar playing to very good advantage on that song. For sure. If yeah. I remember it correctly. Yeah. Uh, my aluminum plate. The liner notes talk about this thought at the time that aluminum caused Alzheimer's. <laughs> yes, and this was another. This was a pure Nelson song, and really, in terms of the songs that persist, the hundreds of songs that we did, the ones that persist in my memory, this is one of the top ones. Um, this is one of the songs that I love. Uh, just you know, not only for its kind of like waltz underpinnings, but just the, it's such a good example of our twisted logic. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we would hear something on the news, or in those days, we all really read the, the Times all the time. So we read newspapers. People don't read newspapers anymore, but we would read newspapers and come in like really disturbed by some idea that and Nelson twisted it into the idea You know, apparently there was something in the article that said that the aluminum from things that you used actually became deposited in the folds of your brain. So this whole song is about, oh, my God. And then it's so funny because he's like, uh, he he kind of like at the end of of one of the lines, he like pretends to forget the line and and says, now we sing (laughs) dum-dee-dum-dee-dum-dum. So, uh, and as age approaches, right. you know, this makes even more sense. <laughs> this, this song could be true. <laughs> Maybe that explains it all. Yeah. Okay, the next track, Backward Christian Soldiers, is another cover. Tell me about the band Avant Squares. Um, they were very good friends of ours. They were in the same set. I think they may have even had an album on Lost, but I'm not sure. Uh, they were came from a kind of interesting background. Uh, 
uh, Barbara Barg, who recently deceased, uh, came from Arkansas, I think, where her father owned a car lot, a, a, a new car, something or other uh, dealership. Uh, Mike Sapol was a Ph.D., a Ph.D. student in history at NYU. I think he eventually moved to Washington, D.C. But this is an example of the kind of the brainy artistic axis that many of these bands operated on. And this was a great, uh, and I think they were Jewish, too. So, I mean, this is like an anti-Christian song that we embraced. I mean, we all had kind of Czech religious backgrounds. So, you know, this was their riff on, you know, Onward Christian Soldiers. I don't know whether it structurally resembles that, but the whole idea was to, like, take off from that song and kind of turn it on its head. And uh, quite a compelling song with a kind of driving drum and bass line. Mm-hmm. I still remember it. It kind of like plunks in my head. But yeah, we love that song. We sometimes wish that we would do more covers of uh, songs from our immensely talented friends. The sounds like uh, The Breaking Glass, for example, is that Elliot sampling that on his double neck? That's Elliot's brilliance. Yeah, yeah. Elliot just, you know, uh, and 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 Willie's yelping vocal is just fantastic. I really love that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, flipping it over, the wit and the wisdom of Judge Bork. I'm guessing is a was a real person. You know, the lyrics seem to be talking about something specific. I believe in an original t- intent. The Ninth Amendment is just a blot of water on the Constitution. What can you tell me about yeah, the, Judge this, Bork? This is like. <laughs> This is like a willy rant. Uh, Judge Bork, I can't even remember what he did now, but he pissed us off. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm desperately looking to see if there's a note on the back um, that explains this song, but there isn't, unfortunately. So um, he, he, was, he was famous for doing something that we didn't like. Okay. But what it was, I can't remember. It's my aluminum plate. My <laughs> aluminum plate. <laughs> We'll we'll find it uh, we'll find it on the Google machine. It'll it'll be it'll definitely be there. No question about it. Yeah. Okay. Another cover, Forty Cent Meat, a great cover, perfect for Mofungo for sure. Um, I'm assuming you know the Pete Seeger version is probably the the version that you you heard of this song. You know, it wasn't. It was mm-hmm. once again from a Folkways album. I don't remember whose Folkways album, but. Uh, I mean, we love Pete Seeger, of course, but it was something older than Pete Seeger. Hmm. Um, it says here, Bob Miller and Emma Dermer. Uh, I assumed that I heard it on an anthology of al- of music from that time. Okay. Yeah, and no, you... I don't mean to detract from Pete Seeger, but I don't think it was from him. It was from somebody else. Uh, I would, now that you say that Pete Seeger has done it, I would love to go back and listen to his version. Yeah. His versions were often slicker than these gritty versions that we found on the Folkways albums. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. And, you know, Long-Haired Preacher is the next one. Is that the next one? Yeah, it's the next one, yeah. Well, th- that one is so famous. I mm-hmm. mean, in my leftist activities at University of Texas and University of Wisconsin, Long-Haired Preacher's the Joe Hill song, was, like, you know, famous. It was something that was sung around the campfire, uh, my daughter went to a, was, I sent her to a communist Jewish summer camp up in Connecticut, yep. along with all her other little friends from Greenwich Village. And that was one of the songs. I mean, I was shocked to find that they were still singing it around the campfire. It's, <laughs> it's, a, 
it's, it's immortal. It's such a wonderful. Oh, yeah. But, of course, we screwed it up by adding verses about uh, Tammy Baker. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at the time, they were topical, the most annoying yeah. evangelists, <laughs> the biggest uh, hypocrites. And I think in terms of our many interpolations of this sort of material, I think this is one of the uh, the better I think I may have actually written the fourth stanza, but mm. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, their love is big and it won't go away, right? Joe Hill endures for sure. I, you'll you'll still hear his songs on a picket line today. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even though wasn't he an anarchist? Yeah, I think he. I think well, he. He was a wild right? Yeah, one. yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, sold again. Who's doing vocals on that song? Um, Willie. And, you know, I don't know the genesis of this song. Um, other than it, it's another one of those that kind of shows uh, Elliot Sharp's improvisational influence. And I think, if I'm not wrong, I may have actually played the guitar on that song. Okay. The bass on that one almost sounds like a bass synth or something. There's definitely an effect on the bass. It is that, and maybe Elliot or somebody else was playing bass mm. in that song. But okay. I'm pretty sure that I picked up the Rickenbacker that I used years before on the uh, El Salvador. I played guitar on that too. So uh, I'm the worst guitar player in the world, but <laughs> sometimes you just need a bad guitar. When you played live, would you switch instruments? You know, it was the style of bands at that time to annoyingly switch instruments all the time. And I have to hang my head and say we did. Um, <laughs> Savior, impede me not. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. Savior, impede me not, I believe it's, uh, there's no vocal. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, uh, a song that I remembered from being a child in a Presbyterian church. I took it and brought it for years to Mofungo practice, and it never, never really worked. It never clicked, uh, maybe because I didn't have any idea of what to do with it. But uh, it ended up being, after having practiced it for years, it ended up being a, a vocalist song. And uh, it, it's from a, I mean, if you were raised a Protestant, you may recognize the tune. Uh, it, it's like it's sung all the time. Yeah, I don't remember what the, the song was, but it was something that I dredged up. And we were always bringing little fragments into rehearsal. And uh, we would see if it clicked. And if it didn't, we had two choices. One was just to discard it immediately. The other was to just kind of make people play a little over and over again. And eventually something happened or didn't happen. Right. Like, I had this Led Zeppelin riff that I started playing at the start of every practice, and everybody would, like, look at me and, like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and it never turned into a song either, so. Guided Tour, you mentioned, was uh, kind of a studio improv. A bit of a snapshot, maybe, lyrically, of New York at that time, like, with the gentrification that was starting to happen? Definitely. And that's exactly what it was. It was improvised pretty much on the spot. We wrote the lyrics on the spot. To me, in the years that followed, it seemed hopelessly naive and self-indulgent. Uh, but now I think it's not too bad. I mean, it does convey something uh, at, its, at its earliest 
you know, we, we met the enemy and it was us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the album artwork. Uh, art direction is Robert Sietzema with assistance of Chris Nelson and Gretchen Van Dyck. Can you tell me how this art was created? To begin with, this art was, it began with me, I must have still, I was working at Dover then, assembling swipe file books. And I came upon this color plate that is the back of the uh, of the album of these bugs, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought they're so beautiful. I have to, and they're all in the public domain. Right. Of, of course, you know these were originally done with like multi-plate color printing, so the the, the four color separation that's being made here. It's not as good as the original, but it's still pretty good. And then I took other pictures of insects that I had, the praying mantis, the dung beetle, the, you know, all these, the earwig. And, um, and I decided I wanted to put them on the cover. And um, I had this beautiful aerial, book of aerial photographs, and one of them showed rugs being dried in Algeria or something like that. Uh-huh. And, um, and so I, being a non-artist, I set out to draw the aerial photograph <laughs> of these rugs. And, uh, and this is what came out of it. And then I slapped the bugs on the top. And I believe that, uh, that Nelson did the gorgeous typography. I think that those, I'm looking, but I think that those may be hand-lettered on the back. He and I swapped off art direction, uh, art direction responsibilities. Oh, Gretchen Van Dyke is my wife, and uh, so okay. I'm giving her credit. She may have done something. She's a textile designer. Um, I'm not sure what she did, and when I'm done here, I'm going to go ask her if she remembers if she did anything. <laughs> she definitely did something, but I'm not sure what. EAC guy gets a credit as well, perhaps for the back cover. Who does? EAC guy. Oh, 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 yes. He's the uh, he's the artist that did the uh, those original color ones okay. on the back. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now that now that I see his his name, I uh, I I remember. Okay, I'm assuming Elliot was the connection to SST. Uh, as he had been in several other cases, yeah, we we did some work on Zor, which was his own private label. Yeah. But yeah, we were um, we were. I think not only he provided connection, but I think we were instrumental in melding his relationship with SST. Uh, I think at the time SST had so many bands, and I think we fit very nicely um, into their stable of you know even though we didn't really have much direct connection with them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we had been friends with uh, the Minute Men. Uh, you know, we met various other SST bands that came. Were the Minute Men on SST? Yeah, you bet, yeah. Oh, okay, so th- that explains another connection. Uh, we were fairly close friends with them, and... Uh, you know, and would host them and play gigs with them sometimes in uh, New York City. Mm. Okay. So that explains another, maybe they sold us to Greg Ginn, I don't know. Did you tour outside of New York? As generally middle-class people with full-time jobs, we 
we used to play one-off shows in Boston, in uh, Providence, in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia. We did a lot of playing out of town, mainly locally. We did go on a couple of tours, including one tour uh, through the Midwest that hit St. Louis and Kansas City and Minneapolis and Madison, Wisconsin, culminating in a show across the uh, the street at the Cubby Bear Lounge or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Ira Kaplan was our driver on that tour. Uh, he was a close friend and ally for a long time. And, uh, and we were going to see a Mets and a Cubs game before playing the show. And uh, he was such a rabid Mets fan. And, of course, Cubs fans are notoriously <laughs> rabid. So... Right. He was like trying to jump up and down and scream, you know, abuse at the Cubs fans. We had to like literally hold him in his seat. So, and then we had just a splendid, you know, our shows on the road, either they were horrible and three people would show up and say, where's Elliot? Cause Elliot would never go on tour with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, he needed a lot more money since he was a professional musician. Right. And, uh, and Ira would fill in for him and play some songs. But at any rate, uh, we had a, a marvelous time on those shows and uh, and rode around in an RV. Any idea when, if or when, some of these other records, including Bugged, might pop up on the Mofungo Bandcamp page? Um, I certainly think we could do it. Now, I heard that there's another album, an eighth album, that's on the Bandcamp page now, right? I mm-hmm. mean, yep, the unreleased one from I, the from the early 90s, I believe. Yeah, I should I should go listen to it because I'm sure it's fine. No, I don't know, and I wish they would put it up there. Maybe I'll talk to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really talk. You know, I've I had lives before I was in this band, and I've had several lives afterwards. So uh, <laughs> it, I haven't stayed in the same milieu. Right. So um, Reco- although we did uh, a, a few year, a very few years back, we did. Uh, one of the Hanukkah show nights, we got together again and opened for Yola Tango and uh, at Maxwell's and one of the last years that club was open and just we had a great time and it was really fun to pretend again that I was like a bass player in a rock band. <laughs> yeah, was that show filmed or, or recorded in any, in any way? I think it was, but mm. I once again, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, uh, as far as like your writing and stuff, where can people go to check that out? Is there a central location? They could just Google Robert Sietzema, or they could go to ny.eater.com, which is the main place that I publish criticism of food. Uh, it's uh, part of Vox. It's part of the Eater empire, eater.com. Mm. So okay. you have to put the NY... Or otherwise, if you don't put ny.eater, then you end up at the national the national website. Right. They keep Ro- me in New York, as <laughs> is wise of them. <laughs> no shortage of restaurants popping up, I'm assuming. 50,000. Wow. <laughs> Robert, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And Brant, thank you so much for asking me. This has been a wonderful uh, stroll down memory lane. Oh, that's great. It's good to hear. All right. So cool to have Robert on the show. You can definitely tell that 
he has got like way more stories about that scene, but he's like too humble to tell them too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, just mentioning Andy Warhol, for example, I bet you there's a ton of other stories like that about, you know, the really, really, you know, what are often touted as, you know, the main New York scene guys, but. Well, it sounds like there's a book or a documentary just in that building, the music building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we've talked, we've talked about all these photo books that are coming out. Sounds like uh, Robert has a photo book sitting in a shoebox somewhere. Yeah. You know, that was one thing that caught my attention too. He's like, well, you know, everyone has got those. Well, just because everyone has got shoeboxes full of cool black and white photos from back then doesn't mean it wouldn't warrant putting it out there for people to see. I bet you there would be an audience even for multiple black and white no wave books. I mean, I mentioned the Thurston and Byron Coley one. There are definitely other ones out there. That's probably for me still the definitive one. I mentioned a, a few episodes ago, this soul jazz records, book new york noise right it definitely covers some of the no wave scene and it even has some of the same photos that are in thurston and byron's book but you know a really comprehensive no wave book i i still don't think it has happened yet well there's a few documentaries but i don't think mofungo is in either one of them I, it's been a while since i saw them but might have to rewatch. yeah yeah i don't know well Maybe we need a documentary on Swerve. Yeah, I still don't know what it is. It always seems to be lumped in with No Wave, and I guess I don't know what it is separate from uh, from No Wave. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is you know the popular opinion, and maybe it says this in those books. But uh, Robert credits Chris Nelson as coining the term in New York Rocker. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. That's another magazine that could use a a best of collection or something, New York rocker, those pop up from time to time with just like, I've never actually seen one. And I'm sure people are going to hear this and go, man, are you ever lame? You've never seen a New York rocker, but you see the articles from them and the covers, like those seem like a, a source of amazing music history that really needs to be reissued. Yeah. Like, like the slash book or something. Yeah, or the Touch and Go book or the Sub Pop book or something like that. Like It seems like a ton of great information and uh, music history there that really hasn't been collected together. Are you thinking, sorry, were you thinking um, that documentary, Kill Your Idols? Is that the one you're That's thinking one of? That's one of them, yeah. Okay, what's the other one? Blank uh, City? Blank City is no, that one? No, Blank City's good. That's more about some of these films. Like That's a really good one because... It talks about a lot of these people that we've talked about, um, yeah. like in some of these, especially these more recent episodes, like, uh, you know, what I'm probably thinking about is Beth B, my spiel from last weekend, Lydia Lunch. I'm, I guarantee ah. you she's in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You needed more lunch last week. I did, yeah. And now we're just finishing the lunch. Okay, I have Blank City. I got to watch it again. Okay, right on. Um, hey, I've got a press kit. You want to hear a couple of spiels out of that? Yeah, man. So I was surprised. I mean, honestly, I haven't I haven't opened up my bugged LP for a while, but I was surprised when I opened it up to find a press kit in there. And of course, as usual, the press kit is really for 
messenger dogs of the gods. It's about a, a preceding right. record. Right. Um, but here's a couple of spiels out of there. Some of these are talking as well about, you know, what does Mofungo sound like? Here's Ted Drozdowski from Boston Rock talking about the messenger dogs of the gods record. Don't bother trying to pigeonhole these guys. Rock, jazz, country, funk, and pure squall spin into their pop Cuisinart and emerge in a chunky genre blend that's witty and accessible despite, or maybe because of, its mixed lineage. I thought that one was good because it was a, a food analogy. Yeah. I thought that would be good for Robert. And then there's another article that's in here. It's not credited it looks to be from a magazine called music and sound output i'm not sure about that that might just be the section of the magazine it's not clear what magazine it is but it's by a guy named mark Derry. and here's what uh, mark said about mofungo and i like this the name of the article you may, you remember that song let's get physical yeah the name of this article is let's get clerical i love <laughs> okay i love that here we go the name Mofungo conjures some swamp thing schlepping from a black lagoon, but according to bassist Robert Setsuma, it's the cheapest thing on many Cuban Chinese menus. It's a dish made out of plantains that are steamed and mashed, and it has a kind of lard-based gravy poured over it. Yum. And then it says, indeed, on discs like El Salvador, Out of Line, Zor's Louisanda grab bag peripheral vision and Frederick Douglass make music that's as gnarled and naughty as Keith Richards arteries. Oh, even like back that. then Keith was getting. Yeah. And it says some. here, it's music that'll put bees in your blood, music that mixes skiffleish hijinks, Marxist philosophy and post no wave fret banging oh. more than it, more than anything. It's mofungo music. And then I like this paragraph here. Hang on. The band avows Kate and Anna McGarrickle, Led Zeppelin, West African music, Captain Beefheart, and that's a reference you hear a few times in the articles, The Fall, The Minuteman, and Per Ubu as influences. They'll play anything within grabbing distance, including found metals, a three-stringed bass tuned B, G, A, a hobby kit monstrosity called the gnome synthesizer and a homemade triangular bodied thin necked bass, a sort of giant bazooki. You know what we're going to do, Ryan? What's we're going to serve mofungo at our rap party. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, it would be great if we could have Robert up to critique our, our menu as well. Yeah. You know what, Ryan, I was thinking though too, is like how many records now, have we gotten to that were, you know, curated almost for SST by Elliot? Coming up on a dozen, I bet. Like he and Henry Kaiser were kind of like almost A&R for SST's like avant-garde. They were like scouts, yeah. like baseball scouts yeah. for the weird and unusual. You want to do these tracks? Sure, man. History lesson part two. I'll tell you what the spaceman said about this before we get into the tracks too. Yeah, hit me. Here's Michael Whitaker from the SST catalog. Mofungo are bugged. Oh man, are they pissed off. You wouldn't notice by listening to their music, though. 
like the guy who gets 10 years in the pen for stealing bread and ends up in a cell with the febrile Ronald Reagan, life is funny that way. 13 songs of Louis Seda madness. What does all of that mean, Brent? What does that mean? He liked some expensive words, man. Yeah, wow. All right, Ryan, this came out in 1988 on CD, LP, and cassette. Uh, As I referenced in the interview, there are some great liner notes written by R.S., as it says. So as we go through these, Ryan, you're going to dish us the liners. Got it. Okay. Track one, side one, or I think it's actually face one on the LP. It is. Yeah. is number one for takeoff. I feel like it's been a long time, Ryan, maybe too long, since I've said that a guitar solo was a real Gin-esque solo. Ah. But this one starts with a real fret melter. I'm not sure if it's Elliot or Chris, but it's a real corker, this solo. Yeah. Well, Robert seemed to mention that, you know, Elliot would not be the one doing the the chords the chord playing so i i seem to when i listen to this have in my mind that it's elliot doing all the shredding but we could be wrong yeah great groove going on this one willie on vocals uh robert calls this an obvious willie song Mm -hmm. yeah this one uh in the liner notes it says number one for takeoff is our response to the news that the air traffic controllers are in the process of organizing a new union. Many of these same controllers scabbed against PATCO during the last strike. Shame. The new, the new union will be an oxymoronic union of scabs and doesn't deserve the support of other unions, the public at large, or Mofungo. We don't... Uh, there's nothing lower than a scab, Ryan. We don't tolerate scabs. Well, these are... Just, scabs scabs too if i if i'm reading this correctly yep uh some great economy with the lyrics which i think is maybe like a willy trademark almost you hear it mm-hmm. on some other mafungo tracks yeah i like it it's a great opener oh yeah it's cool and even you know just using the words da 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's almost like you know da 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 oh don't worry nothing to see here Nothing's wrong. Nope. Union of scabs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Track two. The Pope is a potato. Willie on vocals again. Uh, some vibes in this one. Pretty prominent. Not sure who's playing them. Uh, this one has that SST sound for sure. Like this almost could have been a Zoog's riff track, especially with the T bar guitar. The slide guitar for sure. I thought it was marimba on this. Is it vibes? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Someone's hitting something. Yep. All right. Well, here's here's what it says in the liner notes, and you covered this a bit in the interview as well. The Pope is a potato is about the pontiff's recent visit to the New World. I'm sure that there's, you know, quotations, air quotes around New World. In anticipation of his arrival in Miami, hundreds of thousands of T-shirts were printed with the Pope's likeness. Due to a mistake, indefinite article, the inscription on the shirts translated as the potato instead of the pope still these shirts proved very popular when distributed along the motorcade route despite mofungo's best efforts we were unable to obtain one Hmm. that's a shame as well yeah very all right uh track three hello ollie 
uh, obvious Chris Nelson song, I think is what Robert says. His plucked chicken voice. Mm-hmm. Total post-punk feel with the bass and those jagged, discordant guitars. I know what Robert means by the chuck plucked chicken voice. It's almost like Mark's Mark Mothersbaugh-esque at times with a bit of a yelp to it. You can, oh, yeah. You can hear it better on some other tracks. This one is more screamed than sung, almost. <laughs> uh, I loved the... Uh... The bass intro, it kind of had like, you know, and this is several, well, maybe not several years later, but it almost like predates a lot of bass intro or bass riff sounds in the band, the Pixies, mm, the, yeah. this, this bass riff here. Um, it totally jumped out for me. So, and uh, Robert was ahead of the pack there. If that was Robert on bass on this, I assume so. Yeah. Track four, All I've Got's Gone, written by Ernest Stoneman and Dave Macon. It's a Depression-era track about someone moving from you know rural life to the city to find work. It was recorded in 1924, uh, I th- think, by Uncle Dave Macon. Ernest Stoneman, who co-wrote it, was an early country music star who was doing quite well for himself but lost everything during the Great Depression. Uh, you can hear this track. It's pretty easy to find, like, the original version. Robert was kind of curating these tracks for the band from what sounds like a pretty extensive collection of, you know, mm-hmm. old folk recordings. Yeah, it's cool. It definitely has like a, a country tinged vibe to it for me, almost like a Mark Knopfler-esque type of solo in it too, that works real well. Yep. So it kind of sounds like maybe there's a mandolin in it too. It, it, uh, it totally works. All right, track five, Hosting a War. Great little two-minute intro. The drums and bass pattern mm. is super cool. It's yeah. almost like they're playing two different time signatures. Maybe, I'm not sure if they are. This almost sounds like a dead Melkman instrumental a bit. Like, you know, just a quirky intro, some great jagged guitar riffing over top. Love it. Yeah, great intro to the song, too. It just grabs you right off the bat. You're like, what? Because it sounds very different when it's right next to All I've Got's Gone, and it totally grabs you. My Aluminum Plate, a Chris Nelson song, a bit of a country feel with the pedal steel, kind of like a demented waltz almost. This is Mm -hmm. like almost like something I could hear Jello Biafra and Mojo Nixon doing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the write-up from Robert in the liner notes, which you guys mentioned in the interview as well. We have been worrying a lot lately about our personal exposure to aluminum. Recent articles have suggested that there is a link between aluminum and Alzheimer's disease. Some pathologists believe that the metal is actually deposited in the gray matter of the brain in plates that are about as thick as aluminum foil. The narrator of my aluminum plate is unconcerned about this phenomenon since he sees senility as a beautiful state. The poet admonishes us to continue cooking in our aluminum cookware and drinking beer from aluminum cans, etc. This song strikes an optimistic note for all of us with diminishing mental resources. Nice. Kind of like me who can't remember what we said last episode. (laughs) Yeah. All right. The next track, Backward Christian Soldiers, written by Barbara Barg, Joe Chasler, and Mike Sapple, a.k.a. Avant Squares. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original, I think it's the original, 
or the only recorded version I could find, is on a double LP called One World Poetry on Giorno Poetry Systems, which did a lot of like New Alliance style spoken word albums. Avant Squares actually have a, so a different track on there, uh, but there is a song on there called, it's just called Christian Soldiers, and it's credited to Barbara alone. So I'm wondering if it's maybe just not a spoken word version of this track. Mm. Uh, again, we've got Robert laying down just a fat bass line. Willie doing that, you know, what I think Robert describes as a ratchety off-kilter style, which is totally reminds me of Keith Levine. Elliot yeah. laying it down over top, triggering, triggering samples, I assume, on that double-neck bass guitar. Uh, this, to me, is a, a better example of that Chris Nelson vocal style, the, the chicken vocals. Yeah. Yeah. Just love the lyrics. They want to make the wor world safe for Armageddon. Don't let them. Don't let them. Oh, yeah. It's totally just taking the piss out of, you know... Some uh, definitely very popular themes in the 80s in terms of religious uh, fanaticism and religious corruption yeah. happening at the same time. Christian soldiers smashing records, burning books, Christian soldiers seething with satanic looks. Ew. Yeah. Here's what here's what Robert wrote. Here's one of the here's one of the essays about this song now. Backward Christian Soldiers was written and performed several years ago by the great New York band called the Avant Squares. It is here recorded by us with their blessing. One of the reasons that so many of the songs on this album concern religion is that religion is constantly, nauseatingly in the news. The Pope's visit was annoying. While his ostensible message was one of peace, he fostered the Cold War at every opportunity while condemning the liberation theologians of whom we partly approve. He fought against birth control and women's rights. Like Reagan, he was always able to show a beaming face while harboring the darkest wishes for humankind. Whoa. Or, uh, you know, if you want to just get down to the point, I will just direct you to uh, the band Old Skull. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's the really, what's the lyric, Ryan? They're really pissed off. Yeah. I hate you, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I hate you, Ronald Reagan. I'm really pissed off. So eighties. Yeah. All right, flip it over for uh, the wit and the wisdom of Judge Bork. Ooh, the longest song on the record, four minutes four seconds. Ryan, you're the legal scholar. Tell me about Judge well, Bork. Well. So I'm not a I'm not a United States legal scholar, but apparently Judge Robert Bork was well known. And now Robert said he was famous for doing something they didn't like. He uh, he served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Eighty two to eighty eight is the period uh, around this record. He was appointed by Reagan, but part of the reason. You know, he had some very conservative views, you know, that that really suggested he was interested in rolling back women's rights, civil rights and what have you. But one of the things that uh, people didn't like him for to begin with was during the Nixon era, he was really hated because of his role in what is known as the Saturday Night Massacre, where the Watergate special prosecutor 
Archibald Cox was fired by Nixon after ordering the Oval Office tapes. So Nixon, you know, figured, uh oh, you know, I'm going to get caught here. Oval Office tapes are ordered to be published. And in fact, Bork, he was like the third. Nixon had asked two other predecessors to fire Archibald Cox, and they said no or resigned. They got to Bork, and Bork said, you know, as you wish, and fired him. Of course, Nixon uh, eventually got found out and then, quote-unquote, resigned. And then Bork was subsequently proposed to be appointed to the Supreme Court in the U.S., and there was a ton of controversy about that as well. He was he was proposed to be appointed by Reagan, but again, because of his backwards civil rights views, apparently, there was, a uh, for his Senate hearing, a lot of opposition and uh, on the shoulders of a very strong speech by Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, Bork ultimately was not appointed. And uh, the next guy that came up was like unanimously appointed. So Bork was well despised by a lot of people in the day for holding conservative backwards thinking views and being kind of a yes man for conservative presidents in the u.s is how i would put it yeah my favorite thing that i read is that later on uh his name became a verb like when yeah. other, when other right-wing crackpots got nominated or whatever and they were you know they got their nomination thrown out they would call it you know, they would say we're going to bork him. <laughs> yeah, they got they got borked. They got borked. You know, I read I read a fair amount of things about him though, and you know, there's a there's a number of passages from Bork himself, and then even in his memoirs that seem to suggest he was perhaps not as conservative as people. He certainly had some conservative leanings, but perhaps not as conservative as everyone. You know, led people to believe so that you could avoid his nomination but the mere fact that he fired you know the special prosecutor yeah. at at nixon's behest to protect him that would be more than enough yeah great song a weird song in the best sense of the word i think robert calls it a willy rant i'm assuming mm -hmm. that's e sharp on sax uh, I, I believe in original intent, I assume, is a reference to Bork's belief in originalism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't really know how to describe the backing track, but it's awesome. Yeah. Well, and Bork's, you know, political views are also reflected in some of the lyrics here too, right? Like, the Ninth Amendment is just a water blot on the Constitution, you know, that Ninth Amendment and interpretation of that amendment and just considering it a blot dismissively, I think that that's another heavy criticism of Bork as well. Yeah. The next track, 40 Cent Meat, written by Bob Miller and Emma Derner. Uh, it's also known as 7 Cent Cotton and 40 Cent Meat on some mm -hmm. of the recordings. Another Depression-era track from 1930. Uh this is a cool stripped-down version with acoustic guitar and tambourines, a great slide guitar solo. Very interesting to be pulling back to these Dust Bowl Depression-era songs as being relevant in the in the Reagan era. Very interesting. Yeah, they make them work, though, musically, I mean. Like, it's if you, if oh, you yeah. just listen to Mofongo's originals, you wouldn't expect them to be doing these songs, but they make them work. Yeah. 
Okay, track three, Long-Haired Preachers, written by Joe Hill. Uh, every union activist knows the songs of Joe Hill. Uh, he was a member of the International Workers of the World, wrote many famous union songs, including There is Power in a Union. He got scapegoated for a murder he didn't commit and was executed by firing squad in 1955, or 1915 uh, because that's what they did to labor leaders in those days. Uh, just prior to his execution, he wrote a letter to the IWW leaders that said, Don't waste any time mourning. Organize. Yikes. Here's what Robert said about this track. Um, it's really kind of tagging on to his essay on backward Christian soldiers. Here's what Robert said. Nor could we turn on the news without seeing Jim and Tammy Baker. From behind clouds of pancake makeup, they proclaimed their virtue and innocence. Although they had bilked their adherents out of an estimated $8 million, the amount they received as personal income and perks, during a period of less than three years, in honor of the Bakers, we revived the old WW1 anthem, Long-Haired Preachers. All right, the next track is Sold Again, Willie on Vocals. Uh, Robert says this shows Elliot's improv influence. Uh, the drumming's pretty layered, like almost tribal drum drumming built around a super cool repetitive bass line. Almost an industrial feel to this one. I really like this song. Yeah, and continuing that religious theme here, Robert continues on with Cardinal O'Connor has been annoying us lately by his stubborn opposition to the enlightened bishop's paper advocating instruction on the use of condoms as a preventative against AIDS. Pat Robertson is running for president, claiming never to have been a faith healer. Tipper Gore and the PMRC, with their fundamentalist religious allies, renewed their attempts to censor rock lyrics. Definitely a lot of religious right-wing concern here in the lyrics and in the essay. And this song, this track too, I totally agree. It's got a total, like I don't want to say classic no wave sound, but that bass line and the roto toms and that industrial feel, that is the vibe. That is the sound I think of often when I think of no wave. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the next track is Savior Impede Me Not, based I think Robert's saying you know around a hymn he recalls from his Protestant church days, mm -hmm. uh, some great sax, some weirdo samples from E sharp. I'm assuming. Yeah, it's a cool intro for sure. Yeah. And then we end with Guided Tour. I, I think, you know, Robert says with Elliot saying, you know, let's just make up a song. And we, yeah. We kind of talked about gentrification a little bit, you know, in the interview. The lyrics are like, a limousine swings into view with tinted glass and jersey plates. Over, <laughs> over where the fish market was, now there is a fancy boutique. Yeah, I don't mind art or jewelry, but I'd like something to eat. Yeah. Oh. I love Mofongo, man. They kind of remind me or make me think of Pell-Mell for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. You can there's, de there's definitely a lot of cynicism in the lyrics, kind of like Pell-Mell. And their, their creative use of found sounds or instruments makes them kind of a kindred spirit, maybe? Definitely right up Greg Ginn's alley for sure oh yeah here's a few reviews of this record ryan this is from new york daily news july 10th 1988 and the title of the article is called mofungo's mad again written by david brown 
They say protest songs are outmoded, but don't tell Mafungo. On its aptly titled sixth album, the band unleashes a torrent of abuse onto Oliver North, The Pope, Jim and Tammy Baker, Gentrification, Robert Bork, and Aluminum. Such fervent outrage is par for the course for one of New York's most, most challenging bands. As on earlier records, these observations are mated to the band's snaky, inventive rock. Jagged and ragamuffin, their music is continually enlivened by Elliot Sharp's beautiful guitar textures and the band's in-the-pocket grooves, the sound of New York falling apart and putting itself back together. Here's from another one uh, from Feb 1989, uh, The Pulse by Todd Avery Shanker. Imagine four populist wise guys from Greenwich Village armed with a wicked array of leftist sonic haymakers. Now picture these guys locked in an aluminum-enclosed cell plastered wall-to-wall with Oliver North and Robert Bork posters. (laughs) (laughs) Toss in some instruments and a few Woody Guthrie and Minutemen tapes, and kaboom, Mm. you've got a noisy squall of pissed as hell avant surprise rock mofongo style avant surprise yeah whoa here's robert cites him of one of the ways we practice in mofongo is we go into the recording studio and start yelling at each other and having political arguments reveals mofongo bassist and shriek attack vocalist robert sitsima <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to make bugged as eclectic as possible but within that context we really like to rock he says. Of course, with Elliot producing and playing lead guitar, we're able to add some stylings that make us feel like we're cream or something. But still, that's only one of the masks we like to put on. Ryan, let's talk about the artwork. Cool. Well, it's a very aptly illustrated album cover because it is full of bugs. Yeah. And uh, very cool little images. I can't help but wonder how many of these would be native to New York and the in the East Village and stuff that would be crawling out um, <laughs> at in the dark. But uh, it's great. Yeah. And it says uh, album art direction by Robert Sitsema with the assistance of Chris Nelson and Gretchen Van Dyke. The back cover art is E. A. Sagai. Yeah. And these look like very much. I think Robert mentioned this too. They almost look like. Um, you know, specimen sample photos of particular scarab beetles, I would say. Yeah, I like the story he tells about how the, the cover was inspired by an aerial photograph of Persian rugs drying, laid mm-hmm. out and drying. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the insert, there is a photo of what look like little plastic toy bugs they look a lot like the ones that used to see at all the toy stores when i was a kid anyways in the bottom of a bathtub with a microphone xlr cable in there pro i presume you know each of those bugs is one of the band members uh, suggesting that this this record was made by those four bugs in the bottom of a tub into that microphone that's just my take on it yeah well that makes sense any dead wax ryan no dead wax, but the LP labels are, you know, Mofongo doesn't give up anywhere on their albums. And on the LP label, on face one, it's a picture of 
<laughs> of of Ronald Reagan, and of course the spindle hole goes right through his mouth, <laughs> to great effect when you're putting this record down. Face two is another image. I can only assume it's Robert Bork, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, it could be. I didn't do a lot of research on what Bork looks like, I mm. guess. But uh, it looks like some guy that Mofungo doesn't like. And so they're sticking the spindle through his mouth too. Perhaps, I don't know. There's a good give chance their... it's Bork. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a good, you know, I think this guy, every time you put, you know, when you flip it over and you're going to listen to face two, that guy is getting borked yeah, for sure. Big time. I would say big time Bork action. Let's Bork it over to the ballot result. <laughs> ballot result. <laughs> you know what Bork also reminded me of? The Swedish chef from, uh, from Muppets, you know, Bork, Bork, Bork. Anyways. Yeah, but he's cool. Right, Robert Bork isn't. So Exactly. Oh, I know. All right, man. Gosh, there are so many to pick from this week. Again, that's a lot of records in a row where it's really hard to pick. Um, My Aluminum Plate is like, it's now a classic song for me. Yeah. Uh, Backward Christian Soldiers, I know it's a it's a cover, but I loved that song. 40 Cent Meat, Long-Haired Preachers. I also like the instros, Hosting a War and Savior Impede Me Not. Hmm. We could have an instro too. Yeah, my favorites were number one for takeoff, The Pope is a Potato, Hosting a War, Backward Christian Soldiers, The Wit and the Wisdom of Judge Bork, and Sold Again. Yeah, there's lots of overlap there. Why don't you go for it, man? I feel like you got you got a mofungo baptism this week. You I, pick. I want to do number one for takeoff because I'm a union man. Okay. Da, da, da. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks, Robert, for being on the show. Yeah. Ryan. What's next week? Next week, Brant, we've got another first-timer on the show. It's SST 192, Run Westy Run, the hardly not even record. I, I've been really looking forward to getting into Run Westy Run. And we've got a special guest, Brant. Yeah, Terry Fisher's on the show. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.